You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah, a sermon from our series entitled House Rules, a study on the book of 1 Timothy. For more information, visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Clint Ware, and this is actually my first Sunday on staff as one of the pastors here. Um, Hey, hey, hey. I did not get an applause at the last service, so thank you. Um, Anyways, um, I I just want to start by saying that, man, I'm I'm thankful um, for the opportunity that I have to be a part of this staff. My wife and I, uh, I speak on, on, on her behalf as well, we're grateful for the opportunity we have to be a part of this church. And what God is doing in and through it. And so, man, hopefully, by God's grace, see God do amazing things in this city. Not because I'm here, but just be able to lock arms with you guys in that work. And so we're thankful uh, for the opportunity to do that. We're actually in the process. We don't live in Savannah yet. We're in the process of selling our house in Athens. And so if any of you want one in Athens, I got one, all right? I can't give you a good deal on it, though, um, because I need every penny out of it um, to, to move down here. But anyways... Man, our hope is to, to move here as soon as we can um, and to be here as soon as we can. Until then, I'll kind of be traveling down uh, several weekends uh, a month and just kind of be able to spend time with you guys here until we can move. And so, man, if you think about it, I mean, we would love it. My wife and I would love it if you would pray for us. And this transition would go as smoothly as possible. We have two little ones, and so it would be, uh, and, and two big dogs. Um, so it would be really, it could be really chaotic. Let's just say it probably will be. And so we would really covet your prayers in that. Um, if you've been here at all, um, over the past several months, you know that the, as a church, we've been kind of working through a sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy, and we've been calling that sermon series House Rules. And the reason why is because if you were to boil this letter down, what is it? It really is an instruction manual of what it means to be the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy, who is a, a pastor in, in a city called Ephesus, and really it's written in the intent that the whole church would read it. And so he's basically saying, hey, here's what it looks like for the family of God to be followers of Jesus, to follow after Jesus as the family of God. And so we're actually going to finish this series up today. I think this is week like 16 or 17 or something, and, and no one said amen there, so I guess that means that you guys aren't tired of the book yet. Um, and so that means next Sunday we're going to jump right into 2 Timothy. I'm just kidding, and no one laughed. That's fine. We'll keep going. We'll get there. We're going to get there. I promise. What we're about to see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, I think it'll be on the screen when we get there. But what we're about to see is that really the end of this chapter is kind of just a summary statement of, of um, things that Paul has said already in the letter. So you guys have covered it in detail already, and because of that, I'm actually going to take a little bit of approach to wrapping up this conversation through this book, because there's something I want to get to before we jump into this, because I think there's something that's underneath what's motivating Paul to write this letter, okay? So there's something that's kind of driving him to, to write this to Timothy, and I'm actually going to throw it out there, and it probably ain't going to make any sense, but hopefully it will by the time we get done. It's this, that if we're going to faithfully follow after Jesus, that means that we will be saying goodbye a lot. So I think that one of the themes that pops up in the Bible, one of the things that's motivating Paul as he writes this letter is this reality that if we're going to follow after Jesus with our lives, that we will be saying goodbye a lot, right? That based on what the scriptures teach, Goodbyes are a natural part of what it means to be a Christian, and I'm actually getting to experience this firsthand in my life right now, that as excited as I am to be a part of this church staff, and really just to be a part of this church, for my family to be here, as convinced as I am that this is the place God wants us to be, 
The other side of that coin is that last Sunday, I said goodbye to a church that I love. That God sending me here meant that I was saying goodbye to a place that I love. And when I say church, I don't mean a building, I mean a people. Really the family of faith that I've locked arms with that helped me raise my kids and, help, and I've helped them raise theirs. And we've been following Jesus together. I had to say goodbye to them because goodbye is a natural part of what it means to be a Christian. And I think that at least at some level, Paul had this in his mind as he's writing this letter to Timothy because he didn't tell him in person. He's writing a letter. This is a church that he helped plant, a church that he installed Timothy as the pastor of, and at some point he had to say goodbye to a church he loved. And so he's writing this letter back to them. And like I said, if you read your Bible, one of the primary themes that will kind of bubble to the surface is this reality that God's people are not a stagnant people, but we are a sent people. That even from the very beginning, the idea is that God chooses a people for himself but not so we'll just kind of huddle up and create the most comfortable life we can, separate ourselves from the rest of the world. He, he, he calls a people to himself so that we will be sent. We can trace this back for thousands of years. This will be on the screen. Genesis chapter 12, God is speaking to Abraham, right, considered to be the patriarch of the Christian faith, and he says this, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is the part we love. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. So there's two things here that I want you to see. Firstly, we are blessed by God not to hoard those blessings for ourselves, but rather to extend that blessing to the world around us, right? So and secondly, right from the beginning, what we see is that the call of God on the people of God is to go. What's he say? Go from your kindred to the house that I will show you. Leave your father's house. This was a radical idea in this culture, a lot different than us leaving home, okay? This is everything you know, every bit of your livelihood, every bit of your, like, think about just leaving a hometown that you love. You couldn't think about possibly leaving. God says, go and trust me in this going. From the very beginning, following God meant we were sent. This is a consistent theme all throughout the Bible. Jesus says this in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. What does he say to his closest followers? He says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then in the Acts account, after Jesus has been crucified, after he's risen from the dead, right? And if there's ever a time for you to pay attention to a man, it's after he's died and risen from the dead. And right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he's with his disciples, and he says, or they asked him in Acts 1, uh, starting in verse 6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to Samaria and the end of the earth. What's interesting about this, when Jesus says this to is they're all in Jerusalem. So he says, hey, I'm going to send you all over the world. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And they're all in Jerusalem. Inherently in that is this reality that we are a sent people. In other words, they're asking him. They say, is this the time you're going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? But they're asking, are you going to bring the world to us? Are we going to be able to rule and reign with you now? They're saying, are you going to bring them to us? And Jesus says, no, I'm sending you to them. My plan is different. You are ascent people. And the Bible paints this picture of God's people, his church, that we are ascent people. And the reason why, Jesus says, is that we are to be his witnesses, right? that we are to be his representatives, people who testify about him, who testify to the world of who Jesus is, what he's done, and how our lives have been transformed by this reality. This means that we live our lives through this reality that we are ascent people. 
blessed by God, loved by God in order to extend that love and blessing to the people around us. That means that your life has a purpose far greater than you ever thought possible. Every space you're in, every place you're in, every day you show up to work, every time you show up to class, everywhere you go, God has sent you there to live your life on purpose, that you are representative of Jesus there, blessed by God in order to be a blessing. Other places in the Bible would say, instead of witnesses, it would say that we are to be Jesus' ambassadors. We are to be his representatives in the world. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. <clears throat> The message of reconciliation is the good news of the gospel, that though we were once in every way enemies with God, we, we were, uh, because of our sin, we were separated from him, but because of the blood of Christ, we have been brought back to him. And Jesus has made us ministers of reconciliation, ministers of the message of reconciliation, that God has entrusted to us that message. So what the, the Bible is saying, not only does God do the work of reconciling us, but he entrusts the work of reconciling to those who have been reconciled. Right, this is crazy, this idea, the good news of the gospel, right? We have been separated from God, we've been brought back to him. What a crazy thought that God would, the Bible says, make his appeal to the world through us. What a crazy thought that is. That God takes his enemies and by the power of his love, he transforms them into his children. And then he doesn't just kind of pat us on the backside and say, hey, don't let that happen again. But he entrusts us with the message of reconciliation. He pays this staggering price to adopt us into the family of God. He looks each of us in the face and he says, you are no longer my enemy. You're my child. Because of the work of Christ on your behalf, I love you. You won't fight against me, for I have bought you out of that with a price. But the Bible says he doesn't just love us because it just said that he also trusts us. You see how that's different? How God trusting us is different than him just loving us. And here's an example. I love my two-year-old son. Love him. But if he makes a mess, I'm not letting him clean it up, right? Because I don't trust him to do that because I know he's going to make it work. I might let him pretend a little bit, but I'm like, all right, buddy, you're done. Let daddy fix this. The Bible says that's not how God the Father treats us. He doesn't treat us that way. He doesn't treat us in children's that way, as children that way. The Bible says God entrusts the message of the reconciliation to those who have been reconciled. What this means for us is that from the very beginning, from Genesis 12, thousands of years ago, even before that, all the way back to when sin entered the world, God has been in the business of reconciling to the world to himself, and he has invited us into that translation. He is essentially handing us the family business, that the, the mission of God, the, the church is plan A to execute the mission of God, and there is no plan B. God has invited us into this work. He's handing us the family business to pray, play a role in seeing broken people, a broken world reconciled to the Father. He says we are to be his witnesses as he sends us into the world. We are a sent people, which on one hand is incredible. Right? It, it, it is incredible. It means that we get to live lives of watching our God flex, watching our, do, our God do what Ephesians 3 says is infinitely more than we could ever ask or imagine of him. I don't know about you, but I could ask or imagine a bunch of crazy things, and the Bible says that God is infinitely more powerful, more able to do things than we could even ask him. We get to watch God do that and watch God invite people into his family, people who are broken, who want nothing to do with him, can come and be a part of his family. We get to see that. On one hand, that's amazing. On the other hand, it means that if we're being sent by God, we will inherently be saying goodbye a lot. Most of the goodbyes just aren't easy. Some goodbyes are. Like, I'm sure for most of you, you've had seasons of your life that come to an end, and you think to yourself, 
I don't want to see any of those people again ever, right? I don't want to see those people. I don't want to be a part of that place. You're so thankful it's over. Middle school for most of us, right? We're like, thank you. That's done. If you're in middle school, hang on, all right? If you love middle school, you're blessed by God to be a blessing in middle school. Praise God for that. Um, But by and large, I think, I believe that God has called us to live a life where goodbye should be difficult. We would live our lives in a way that goodbye would be difficult. Whether we're talking about saying goodbye to certain people or opportunities or whatever it may be, a season of life pull us in different directions. Goodbye should be hard for us, which means that we should be people who don't live our lives in such a way where we hold our cards so close so that we can protect ourselves from getting hurt, so that we can move around so freely that we're not so attached where if God calls us or if we have to job change or whatever, that doesn't hurt us when we leave. Right? And if we're honest, don't we want it to be hard to say goodbye? We want it to be hard to say goodbye to a place or to a people because it means that there is real joy there, real memories, real relationships, real pain that's been endured in locked arms together. Like if I sit on this stage and said, hey, I left the church and I don't care at all, you should have a problem with that. But I'm saying I'm leaving it and it's a difficult goodbye. I'm excited about what's ahead, but it's difficult because those are my people. Because I love them and they love me. But we're confident that God is sending us. We should be saying goodbye a lot. It means that we've let people in, that we haven't tried to protect ourselves in such a way that we aren't getting hurt. We've laid our cards down, at least a little bit, because no one's perfect as we do this. And so God's people are sent people, which means that we will be saying goodbye often. It means that for the next 30 or 40 or 50 years, some of you just said amen, um, for the next 30 or 40, 50 years, God is going to send us all over the place. And we're going to see him move and work and flex in different cities and be a part of different churches. And God's going to do amazing things. And we're going to get a front row seat to that because God has invited us into it. God's going to take us everywhere. We're going to see all these different things. Some of our being sent means for the next 30, 40, 50 years, God wants to send you to the same next door neighbor. God wants to send you to the same coffee shop, loving on the same baristas, to the same restaurants. God wants you. Some of your being sent means that God wants you to show up faithfully day after day at the same job. That we don't constantly pursue the American dream of bigger and better and the next job or the next promotion. Some of our, that, that's not bad, but some of our being sent means that we're just faithful. Day after day to follow after Jesus in the places and the spaces that he has for us that we get to see him reconcile. And, and the reality is one isn't any better than the other. And we don't know how long God's going to have us there, right? Jesus says here, we read it, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that fa- the Father has fixed by his own authority. The point is, it doesn't matter if you're in a place for three days or for 30 years, God has sent you there. God has placed you in that space, specific spaces and places in order to be a minister of reconciliation there, to embody the reality that you have been transformed by the love of God, to shine a light on who Jesus is and what he's done, to live your life by this reality that you have been sent by God, that though you were once an enemy, you were once far off, you had now been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God has given us the opportunity to be the ones who spread the good news, live in the reality of the gospel. It's not good information, it's not a good idea, it's good news. That we get to be the ones who tell the world, who are convinced that no one loves them, that they are loved by a father who will do whatever it takes to bring them home. This is the call of God on the people of God for the church. This is what it means to be the church. These are the house rules that we are sent. We have to see our lives through this lens to go and tell a world who's convinced no one loves me. You are. You're loved by a God more infinitely more than you could even think or imagine. You're loved by God. Will you just rest in that? Believe that truth. This is the call on the people of God. In Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about this reality, talking about that we're sent by God 
<clears throat> into the world to be his witnesses. He says something that if you have a background in church, it's probably familiar to you. If you don't, it might still be. He says that we are the light of the world and we're the salt of the earth. So Jesus says this, right? That he says that we're the salt of the earth. And what he means there is that we are to be a people who are set apart. People who live distinct lives that are visibly different from the world around us. Not because we think we're better than them, but because we know that apart from Christ, we're exactly the same. And despite the fact that we aren't good enough, God has still chosen to pour his love and affection out on us. And we want the people around us to know by our distinctly different lives, we want them to know they can experience his love too. He says that we are to be salt and light. That we are to be the light by which people see who the real Jesus is. That's amazing. That God has placed you on the street that you might be the street that you live on, that you might be used by him there so the people on that street can see who the real Jesus is. That is amazing. He says that we are to be the salt of the earth. <clears throat> this one's actually a little more confusing for us culturally because for us, salt is just like a flavor additive, right? It's what you're about to put on your chips as you go to lunch here in a bit. I don't know what the go-to Mexican restaurant is. I'm new here. I'm going to learn. I think maybe jalapenos. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Some people are like, no. Other people are like, absolutely. So that's just different people, right? God has brought us together to worship him and respond in spirit and in truth. So for us, salt is just kind of a flavor additive. Um, so is Jesus saying that we're supposed to just bring the flavor to the world? Some people make that argument. I do think that, that part of that's true, but that's not primarily what Jesus means when he says we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. So maybe Jesus means... The way we do the word salty sometimes, where you would say, if you're being salty, it's not that you've been in the ocean recently, it's that you have a little attitude on you, right? And so if that needs clarifying, that's not what Jesus means here either. This was a culture that had no means of refrigeration. So for them, to be salty or salt was this incredibly powerful tool of preserving their food so that it wouldn't spoil before they would eat it. Yes, it would bring flavor for them, but it would keep their food from spoiling before they could get to it. And this would be absolutely what the disciples' minds would have gone to as they're hearing Jesus look at them and say, hey, you are to be the salt of the earth. That means that we are to be preservers of culture, that we would live distinct lives that don't just conform to the world, but point to the reality that life works best when it's lived the way that God says. We live our lives the way that God says we should live. And this is everything from the way we handle our marriages to the way we spend our money to the way we treat our mailman. It's everything in between. We live distinctly, uh, lives that are distinct from the culture around us. Again, this is incredible. We are a sent people. God is inviting us in to see him do amazing things. Right? We get to see people who were once his enemies given a seat at the family table. But then Jesus says something that actually should make all of our ears perk up. This will be on the screen. Look at this. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, <clears throat> but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. <clears throat> in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> Sorry. So the point I want you to see is that Jesus is making here is that for us to live our lives as Christians, if we're going to follow Jesus, where we are the salt of the earth, where we are preservers of culture, there's a way for us to live our life where we are the light of the world. And then he says here, there's a way for you to live as Christians where you're not, where you're not the light of the world, where you're not the salt of the earth. And this is strong language, isn't it? 
He says salt that's lost its taste, no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Strong language. Something I need to clarify here, what Jesus is doing, he's not saying that if you don't live the way that God says, then you're no longer good for anything anymore. He's not saying that you no longer have any value when you stray from the way that God lives. What he's doing, well, we know that because God says that our value doesn't come from what we bring to the table. Our value comes from what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. What Jesus is pressing on here is this. What good is a light that's been covered up? He's saying that you have been given a value inherently. I want to use you for these amazing things, but you're content to sit in your own little teepee. You're content for you to be the one to see, and Jesus knows that real and lasting joy in this life comes from letting us shine our light before others in such a way that God gets the glory for it, that we wouldn't be content just for us to be able to see, but that we live our life on mission for God through this reality that we are sent by him to our neighborhoods and to our vocations and to the playgrounds, the parks, wherever it is you spend your time, you're sent there by God in order to be a mission uh, or to be a representative of Christ. So there's a mission, the message of reconciliation. My question for us today, and this actually will bring us to 1 Timothy 6, and everyone in here was like, that was all introduction? <laughs> like, we got to get to jalapenos, bro. Like, if I'm going to get salt on my chips, I need you to get out of here, they're going to run out, all right? I'm going to, I got you, we'll get there. So, he's saying what good is a light that's covered up, and, and I really just want us to consider for a second, how do we do that? Like, how do we live in such a way where we let our lights shine? Because I don't know about you, but when I read this, and I read passages in the Bible that say that God wants to use my busted and broken life to shine a light on who Jesus is, that gets me fired up, right? That makes me want to, to re or figure out how do I live the saltiest life possible? Because that gives my life purpose far greater than anything I could accomplish on my own. What do we need to do as the family of God to not let our light be covered up, to not grow dim this is actually where 1 Timothy comes in. I mentioned earlier, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a guy named Timothy who was a pastor in Ephesus, but really the intent of the letter was that it would be read by the entire church. So he's writing a letter to this church, this group of people who had gradually let their light grow dim. This is why we need to pay attention to this. It's written to a group of people who, despite the fact they had once lived these culturally distinct lives where they saw God move and work in crazy ways, so much so that it really flipped the whole economic structure of the city of Ephesus on its head. That built uh, businesses that were propped up by sin, were, had to shut their doors because people were turning away from that sin. There's this crazy movement of God in the city of Ephesus where people are, are following after Jesus and running from the things that are caught, robbing them of joy. And they see God move and work in these crazy ways. You could read about that in Acts 19 or the book of Ephesians and see God do this. Despite that, they have drifted. Drifted away from, from following Jesus faithfully, and they have grown to let their light grow dim. And so Paul hears about what's happening in Ephesus, and he writes this letter to instruct them, hey, here's what it looks like for you to get back to let your light shine. So what are the things that we need to be doing in order to drift into dimness, or to keep from drifting into dimness, rather? Look at verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, again, as for you, written to the church, as for you, church, flee these things. We'll talk about what these things are here in a second. He says, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. The first thing he says, but as for you, O man of God. So what he's doing here is he's saying that the Christian life should stand in contrast to the life of the world around him. He's saying your life should look different. 
So earlier in the chapter, he addresses these false teachers, and you guys actually covered this last week if you were here, but there were these group of people, these men, who come in and have kind of led the charge of the drift away from faithfully following after Jesus. And what he says about them, you can read this earlier in the chapter, he says that they're self-absorbed. They're, they're, they're only worried about their own self-interest. They have unhealthy craving for quarrels and controversy. He says all they want to do is fight, and their actions produce evil. He says they produce dissension and quarreling, and like I said, constant friction. So what Paul says here, as for you, your life should stand in contrast. He says, as for you, you flee these things, flee the things that, that are stirring up controversy, and instead, he says, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness. And his point is this, your life should look different. That you, as a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, you are a preserver of culture and your life should look different. And then what he says about how it should look different is actually kind of surprising. Look at verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. So as he's talking about these false teachers, he says, they're just consumed with themselves and all they want to do is fight. But as for you, church, fight. Like, it seems like you're saying, you, you would expect him to say something different. They just want to fight. You need to love. You need to pursue unity. He says, no, they want to fight for themselves. You need to fight for different reasons. He said, you need to fight the good fight. Right? That's not how the people of God should live. And this is huge, man, because this is, the majority of Christians I know, they don't think about their lives this way, but we should. That Paul says the Christian life is a fight. This, this Greek word that's translated fight here is actually where we get our English word agonize. So he's saying that the Christian life at times will be agony. This is what it looks like to be the people of God. Not that we shouldn't be fighting or that we shouldn't expect our fight in life to be difficult. It's just that we need to make sure we're fighting for the right things. Again, he doesn't just say fight. He says fight the good fight, which in life means that there are good and bad fights. More specifically, there are things in your life worth agonizing over, and there are things that aren't. There are things that you're spending your time and your energy that you're trying to hold on to, desperately trying to grip and grab for, that you're agonizing over these things. There are things that are, aren't worth it, but you're doing that. And then he's saying there are things that are. So have you ever, maybe this will help you kind of understand what I'm talking about. <clears throat> have you ever been in a fight? And I don't really mean fist fight, although I guess this would apply. Have you ever been in an argument um, and you thought to yourself, how did I get here? You ever been in that space? Married people, you're not. Like, like, married people know what I'm talking about right here. Even if you're not married, you get it. Like, conversations with your parents, with roommates, with friends. Like, I had conversations with my roommates where I've had to thought, how do we get to this point, right? Um, but maybe you don't even remember why you're arguing, but you just kind of keep going anyway. So what about this? You ever been in a fight, in an argument, and you thought to yourself in the moment, this is dumb. Or this is a dumb fight, but you keep going anyways because you just want to win. Because you have to be the one who get on top. You just fighting and, and clawing for those things, and so... Here's an example. Maybe it's just me. You guys aren't giving me anything today. Um, my youngest son is two months old today. Okay, and so the other night, he slept his longest overnight stretch yet. Six and a half hours, okay? I feel like you guys don't love me right now. Like, somebody should have said amen, right? Somebody should have clapped. Like, young parents, like, you should just let me know that you're with me and that he slept for six and a half hours straight. That's cheap. If I, have to ask, if I have to ask for it, it's cheap. Anyway, so he slept six and a half hours straight. He slept from 9.30 to 4, okay? So he wakes up, and our little process is this. He sleeps on my side of the bed, not in the bed, all right? I'm not going to roll over and crush him. He's in a little bassinet. So I grab him out, and I do what I can do. I change him, and then I give him over to my wife so she can do what she can do, because um, I can't do that, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> 
And so she feeds him, and we're both like, what just happened? Like, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, granted, we've been doing like 1.32 after that first feeding, like barely get to sleep. Like, we're just in a fog, in a daze. We're like, praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? <laughs> it is 4 in the morning. So anyway, we go through our little thing, and then I fall back asleep. I don't know how she gets him back to sleep, but she does. Uh, I don't even know how that works. I'm just out. Um, and so anyway, fall back to sleep, and then he wakes up again. And when he wakes up to want to eat that second time, he's not really crying, which is, again, a blessing, but he just kind of grunts. In my opinion, I have no idea what this sounds like, but if I were to guess what it sounds like for a dinosaur to hatch out of an egg, like that's what he sounds like. He's just kind of grunting and just working his way out, you know, so you got him swaddled. Maybe that's what's going on. So anyways, I get him in a fog, just in a daze, just sleep-deprived for months, and I'm just, like, taking it apart, taking it apart, opening the thing. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. So anyways, hand it to him. And then I look at my phone because it was just 4 o'clock. He fell back asleep, and now he wants to eat again. And so my assumption is it's time for me to get up in the morning. Like, we don't use alarm clocks anymore. Like, the alarm clock, we have one, all right? We don't need to set it. It sets itself. It's just automatic. Um, and so I look at my, my phone thinking it's 7.30 or 8 o'clock. Like, it's time for me to get up. Um, and it's 6 in the morning. Two hours since he last ate. And I just, I'm like, what? Like, for whatever reason, it just got me, I'm sleep deprivation, just a lot of things going. So I turn to my wife, and I'm like, he, he sleeps longer than two hours between feedings, right? Like, that was the tone, you know, she reminded me of this. I didn't know this in the moment, but she reminded me. Uh, she's not here, so I can say that, but. Um, <laughs> so she's like, no, calmly. She, no, you know, usually after the long stretch, whatever that is, he only sleeps about two hours, and then he wakes up, and he wants to eat again. And I'm convinced she's wrong. I'm like, No. You are wrong. Like, we're in bed in the middle of, six in the morning, not middle of the night, but we're like, you're wrong. He always sleeps longer. And I'm like going for it. And I have the thought in my head, I'm like, this is dumb. Like, why am I fighting about whether or not my son should be asleep or be awake? Like, it doesn't matter. He is awake. And like, it was the point in the morning where like, I could have just gone back to sleep, but instead I'm like, no, I want to win. That's not the good fight that Paul's talking about. He actually clarifies what the, what the good fight is in verse 12. He says what? Fight the good fight of the faith. And actually, I think if you're wanting a one-sentence answer to the question, man, how do we let our light shine? Like, what, what are the things that we need to do in order to be the church? This is Paul's summary sentence for the whole letter. This is what it means to be the church, that we would fight the good fight of the faith. Right? It's what he starts the letter with. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Timothy, I'm writing this to you so that you might know how to wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. This is what he's saying. The first one, uh, we're going to figure out what does it mean to fight the good fight of faith. Two things. The first one is this. I'm not going to spend much time on it. Basically, we should not expect the life of following Jesus to be one of comfort and ease. I'm going to be real straight with you this morning because I feel like the Bible is saying this to you, and I, I just want to be honest with what God's saying to us. Many of us expect that if we do our part, that God should do his. Show up at church, we read our Bible, we do our things that God should do. It's like following Jesus should relatively be and mean an easy life. That we want to, our goal in life is to carve out the most comfortable life we possibly can. And so Christianity is one of the ways that we use to get that. But that is not in the Bible. Nothing in the Bible says that as you follow Jesus with your life, all the fighting will be over. The Bible actually says the opposite. That the people of God are to be set apart, that we are to live culturally distinct lives where we set ourselves against the current of the world that we live in. This is all over the Bible. Paul says it. Peter says it. Jesus says it. But still, for some reason, we are surprised by how difficult this life is sometimes. Paul says following Jesus is a fight. It's agony. But he says it's the good fight. This word that's translated good here, other places in the Bible, it's translated beautiful. 
love the way Paul is describing the Christian life when he says the life of following Jesus is agony, but it's beautiful agony. This is the good fight. And I think the reason why Paul says this, fight the good fight of faith, um, is that to Timothy when he says this to the church at Ephesus is because when you're in the middle of the fight, it's hard to remember that this is true, isn't it? Like when you're in the middle of it, like whatever that circumstance is for your life, when the circumstances of your life are pressing down on you so hard, when you get to that space, it's hard to remember that the life of following Jesus is the good fight. It's easy to get to that space where you're trying everything you know to do, where you're going, hey, I put in what I'm supposed to do, but life is really not giving back what I'm expecting. You get to the spot where you think, I can't do this anymore. This is not the good fight, and you throw in the towel. It's easy for us to get to that space, and Paul writes this letter to encourage these folks to keep going. Don't give up. He's saying you have been sent by God. God has not abandoned you. He has placed you in the specific space and the place you're in. He's saying, I know it's hard. Don't give up. I have not abandoned you. And more than that, God is saying to you this morning through the Apostle Paul in the, first Tim- the letter of 1 Timothy, I'm with you. That's what he's saying to us. He says, fight the good fight. The Christian life at times will be agony, but it is beautiful agony. He's saying don't give up. And so here's the second thing. The primary fight of the Christian life is not a fight to do, but it's a fight to believe. That's what it means to fight the good fight. That it's not a fight for us to do, but it's a fight to believe. Not effort to line our lives up externally or morally, it's a fight to believe. A battle to be faithful to Jesus, to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he has done for us what the Bible says he has done, and so we matter. Our identity, everything about us comes from this point, from the gospel truth. Not what we do, not what we accomplish on our own, but what's been accomplished on our behalf. And because of what Christ has done, because of who he is, we are completely loved by God the Father. That's true about you today. Not in this generic way, but as you think about your own life, your own relationship with God, you are fully and completely loved by God now because of Jesus. No matter what you did last night, God is not disappointed in you, whether that was good or bad, because of Christ. Paul says the Christian life is a fight of faith because at the root of all of our sin is a lack of belief in God. At the root of all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds, is a right belief in God. And this is what he's talking about. The reality is every single time we sin, it's an attempt to provide for ourselves what we ultimately don't believe God can or will provide for us. At the root of all your sin is a lack of belief in God. Think about it. Every single time you sin sexually, we're going to go there. Every single time you sin sexually, it exists in all of our lives. At the root of that is a a belief that what God says about sex and how it should work isn't going to provide you the most amount of joy in your life. Every second look, every moment of lust, everything that you give yourself over to sexually, at the root of that is a lack of belief and trust that the way that God says it should work is going to provide you the most amount of joy. All your worry... All your anxiety is is stemmed from, ultimately because you don't believe that what God has for you in this life is going to provide joy. So we worry. We feel like we have to control. We have to manufacture. We have to put ourselves in situations where we know, hey, it can't go that way because we don't ultimately trust God. We constantly chase materialism, right? Chasing after bigger things, better things. I need a bigger house. I need a better house. I need to be on the water. I need this car. I need these clothes, whatever. We chase after that because ultimately we think that those things are going to provide for us a level of satisfaction that God alone can't. The root of all of our sin is a lack of belief in who God is and what he's done. Look at verse 12, what he says next. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. So Paul says, fight the good fight and you take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This word, take hold, it literally means to reach out and grab. That's important because it doesn't mean strive toward. It doesn't mean, hey, work really hard to get. This is an important distinction for us to make because the majority of Christians have a tendency to get this backwards, right? Paul says you need to fight the good fight of faith, and then he clarifies what that means. He says you flee from the things that are robbing you of joy and affection in your life. And he says, hey, you need to pursue righteousness, pursue Christ-likeness, pursue the things in your life. Literally, run after the things in your life that stir joy up, that make it easier for you to believe and trust who God is and what he's done. He says, flee those things, pursue righteousness. And he says, because when we do that, we take hold of the life Jesus had to give us. So we're, we're fighting, not so we can create a life for ourselves, but so we can take hold of the life that Jesus died to give you. The fight of faith is you running from sin and pursuing righteousness, not so God will love you, but to really take hold and believe that he already does. Like you're not a fight to do, a fight to prove you matter, but a fight to believe that the God of the universe right now believes you already do. This is the beauty of the Christian gospel. Do you see the difference? Right? When you get this backwards, when you get this, this thing backwards, you think it's up to you to be godly enough. It's up to your ability to be righteous enough, to be faithful enough, to be gentle enough, whatever we want to go. It's up to us. All of a sudden, when we get pressed on by the circumstances of life we were talking about a moment ago, all of a sudden, the fight of life doesn't seem so good anymore. Because it's up to us. When we feel the weakness in our own hands, we go, hey, this isn't very good. This agony is not beautiful, and you get to the place where so many of us have been, as we mentioned before, you go, hey, what's the point? Throw in the towel, you're like, I'm out. If that's you this morning, you're believing this backwards. We don't fight to earn for ourselves, we fight to take hold of what's been given to us by Jesus. Paul writes this letter to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus because they had drifted from the good fight. They were working to earn what they had already been given to them. This is the man who's working three jobs, like grinding, just scrapping by in order to pay a debt he doesn't even owe. Like, it's silly. This is what Paul's saying. He says, fight the good fight. Don't fight for the things that aren't worth it. Paul says this to them, and the Bible's saying to many of us this morning, friends, you're in the wrong fight. You're fighting for the wrong things. You're wasting your time, your energy, your effort for things that don't matter eternally. It's not up to you to prove that you matter to the world or to God. The question is whether or not you believe that God says you already do. At the root of the gospel, God says you are no longer my enemy, I love you. He says fight the good fight, flee the things that pull you away from God and run after with everything you have the things that stir up in your heart Christ likeness. Make it easy for you to draw you into belief in Jesus. And so here's how I wanna close. I just wanna ask you a question, or really kind of a series of questions, and then encourage you the way that I think Paul encourages the church in Ephesus. First, the question, are you fighting the good fight? I think part of that is, is really the reality of going, hey, does your life feel like a fight at all? Because according to this, it should. Maybe not every single day, because by God's grace, I think he does give us seasons of reprieve, seasons uh, where our life of following Jesus, for whatever reason, just comes easy. But in my experience, I haven't met many people where that season lasts very long. Because by and large, swimming against the current is not going to be easier than flowing with it, right? I think for most of us, life does feel like a fight. And so here's the question. You be honest with God and be honest with yourself this morning. Are you fighting the good fight? 
me ask you a couple questions to kind of help you answer this for yourself. What are you working toward in your life? Like, why do you do the things you do? Whatever it is that you do, whether you go to school or go to work or serve your family or wash the dishes for your wife or make the bed or play golf. Or what, why do you do the things you do? What is it that's motivating you to do the thing? What's underneath that? Are you fighting to earn for yourself or fighting to take hold of the life that Jesus died to give you? Fighting to prove to the world that you matter or are you fighting to believe that the God of the universe says you already do? This is the good fight of faith. Are you running from the things in your life that are pulling you away from God? Are you, are you fleeing those things that are robbing you of joy? Are you pursuing the things in your life that are drawing you into Christ's likeness? Because here's my guess. There are at least a few of us in the room right now who we have things in our life that are robbing us of joy, and we know it. And instead of fleeing those things, we have actually given ourselves completely over to them, and you might be sitting in a chair this morning and you hate yourself for it. You know you have those things in your life, you go, hey, I, I shouldn't be doing that. It's not even like, I don't know the sin that's in my life, it's like, I, I, this is it. This is the glaring thing that you don't want to pay attention to, but you can't get away from it. We feel like we're too far gone. To you this morning, Paul says, fight the good fight. Keep going. Don't give up. He says to you, even you this morning, God loves you. No matter what you did last night, no matter what last week looked like, no matter what the last year of your life looked like, because God's love for you isn't predicated on what you do, it's predicated on what Christ has done for you. Amen. Your performance isn't what, what gives you right standing with God, it's the performance of Christ that counts for you. This is the, the beauty of the Christian gospel, and you think to yourself, how could that be? And the answer is grace. This is how God sees us, that we are sent people by his grace, not by our own merit, not by our own achievement. Are you fighting the good fight? Have you given up altogether? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't know if you're fighting the good fight. Maybe you're going, man, I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm doing what you guys are telling me to do. I'm showing up on Sundays. I'm serving on a volunteer team. I try to read my Bible as much as I can. You're doing all that and you still don't know, am I fighting the good fight? Here's my encouragement to you. You would surround yourself with people who can help you. That you would get in a community group, right? That you would get in a, gr a small group of people who can help you. Not just to check a box off a list. Not for you to just go, up. did my religious duty this week. I showed up to small group or Sunday school or whatever it is that you call it if you're from visiting from a different church. The reality is that God has called us into not a life of isolation, but into a life of community where we live as the family of God, where we commit ourselves to one another in smaller spaces where we go, hey, I am going to intentionally help you follow Jesus. Will you do the same for me? And here's the thing. The reason why most of us are perpetually dissatisfied and maybe you even kind of rolled your eyes when I said get in a small group is because we aren't willing to show our cards. We're perpetually dissatisfied in small group settings because we ain't honest with the people around us. And so we complain about our group leaders or we complain about the other people in our group and their problems and it's always about them. And maybe some of that's true, right? We've said before, man, I've been in a community group and it wasn't helpful for me. Some of that might be true, but here's the reality. Our problem is we aren't willing to quit pretending. Take the mask off. Stop trying to, to prop up this false persona of who we are and how great we are and how we don't struggle here. Or, or what, This is the game we play. Christians want to, we struggle a little bit. We struggle just enough, or we have struggled in the past, right? We struggle just enough to keep people from pressing on the areas of our life that we don't want to go. 
We're perpetually dissatisfied in these spaces because we aren't willing to show our cards. We aren't willing to let people in enough so that when we ask them, do you think I'm fighting the good fight, they can honestly help us. Be willing to put our cards on the table. Do you think I'm fighting the good fight? Guys, this isn't just a suggestion or an add-on to the Christian life. This is actually where conversations like this that start in rooms like this, they actually begin to take root in our soul in smaller rooms. That's where God begins to transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit with the help of the local church. Get people around you. You go, hey, I'm in this with you. Intentionally following after Jesus. I want to help you follow Jesus. Will you help me? I don't want you to be, I know you're busy. I don't want you to be busier with spiritual things because this is where God wants to transform you primarily by the power of the Holy Spirit with the help of the local church. And here's the reality. If you hear anything this morning, the fight of the faith was never intended to be, to be fought alone. It's not. That the world that we live in, the primary way we push against the culture, the world we live in, that everyone says, I'm fine. I, I'm okay. I don't need you. The family of God pushes against that by saying, I'm not fine. I am not okay. I need you. And I need God. The way we fight against the culture of the world we live in. Here's the reality. It's easy to drift. I want to encourage you the same way Paul encourages Timothy. Look at verse 13. He says, I charge you in the presence of many witnesses. Sorry, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, he made the good confession. He says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So Paul's wrapping this up. He says, fight the good fight, even though it's hard, even though at times it feels agonizing. He says, keep fighting, keep fighting to reflect the image of God to the world around you. He's saying, don't give up. And then he says, why? Here's what motivates us not to give up. He says, because there's a day coming where you won't need to fight anymore. The returning of our Lord Jesus, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ at the proper time. Jesus is coming back. And on that day, we will know fully what we now only know in part, that this fight was worth it. And here's what I am convinced of, what I will spend my life standing on place, telling anybody I can, because if we knew today what we will know then, we would not try to hedge our bets with Jesus. If we knew today what we will know then, we wouldn't try to hold any of ourselves back, that we would give everything we have to fleeing the things that are robbing us of joy. We would give everything we have to pursue Christ-likeness at all costs, because we will know that the life that Jesus died to give us is better than anything we can earn for ourselves. And as Paul's thinking about that day, as he's thinking about the return of Christ, the day when the fight will be over, as he's going to the place in his mind where we just went a second ago, he just breaks out into worship. This is so much different than Paul in all his writings. He just breaks out. Look at it, verse 15. He says, he, God, who is the blessed, the only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen who, or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He just breaks out into this worship, and I think the reason why Paul does this, he's saying fight the good fight, as he's thinking about that day, he just wants to encourage the church. He knows it's hard, he knows it's difficult, he knows it's easy for us to drift, and he wants to encourage the church simply by saying this, not you can do it, but this is who your God is. He is the one who, the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the one who dwells in immortality. He is the one who is God. This is who your God is. And the point is this, church, you can trust him. He is trustworthy. 
with God. We're following after God. You can trust him with every bit of your life. You don't have to hold your cards because of what might happen. You don't have to try to protect yourself from getting hurt. You can risk every other goodbye no matter how hard it might be because in Christ, God the Father has promised you that he will never leave you or forsake you. You can risk every other goodbye no matter how hard it might be because God eternally says because of the work of Christ on your behalf, I am with you. Let me pray for us and let's respond in worship. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the reminder this morning that we are doing what you have called us to do. My prayer this morning is that would you help us? We help us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be able to respond this morning in repentance and faith where those of us have given ourselves over to sin. Will you help us to rest in grace? Help us to flee those things. Help us, Father, to pursue righteousness and Christ-likeness. Will you help us to fight the good fight? Give us your Holy Spirit in these next moments as we sing will we not be focused on what's next will we not just even for a moment God will you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to keep from just trying to get to lunch or trying to move along in our lives would you let us taste and see in this moment that you are good I pray this in Jesus name